a rabbi was once seized with an irrational obsession with trying treif, God forbid. And uh, he couldn't get it out of his mind. And finally, he decided, what's he going to do? He's going to go book a ticket to a far-off, remote island. He's going to travel there where nobody knows who he is. And there, under the cloak of anonymity, for the first time in his life, he's going to try some pork. So he flies there. He gets to the airport. From the airport, he takes the car to the resort. He comes to the resort. The first thing he does, he goes to the restaurant in the lobby of the hotel. He sits down, and he orders an entire roast pig. And he's sitting there, and he's waiting for them to bring in his order. And as he's sitting there, all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, one of his congregants, one of the Balabatim from back home, sees him from across the lobby of the hotel, just his luck. One of his guys is there at this little far-flung resort in the middle of nowhere on exactly that day, exactly at that time when he just ordered an entire roast pig. And the guy looks, he says, Rabbi, imagine seeing you here. Small world when you're Jewish. And he comes running over to him and he's schmoozing with him. And, and the rabbi's so, well, uh, he's mortified. <laughs> he, he, he wishes he could dig a hole in the ground and jump in. And at that moment, the waiter appears with a whole platter, with a whole roast pig. You know, the whole thing with the, the roast pig with the apple in its mouth. And he puts it down on the table in front of, of the rabbi, the whole roast pig with the apple in his mouth. You have to envision it like that. He puts it down on the table. And thinking quickly, the rabbi looks. And he looks at his balabas and he says, Ive, I order the fruit plate and look how they serve it. So, <clears throat> speaking of being in a remote place, far, far away from community. This week's Pasha is Pasha's Bamidbar, which literally means in the desert, in the wilderness. And Parshas Bamidbar is always read before Shavuos. Sometimes Bamidbar and Nose is read before Shavuos, but always at least Bamidbar is before Shavuos. In fact, that's brought as a matter of halacha. The Rambam brings in Mishnah Torah, and also it's, it's, it's brought in uh, Shulchan Aruch that uh, Bamidbar has to be read before Shavuos. So uh, we have to say that on some level, there's some deeper conceptual connection between Bamidbar and Shavuos. Now, Shavuos, we know, is man matan teira seinu. It's the season of our receiving the teira. So what would be the connection between receiving the teira and Bamidbar, the wilderness? Well, a simple connection, we know, is that we receive the teira in a Midbar, in a wilderness, in the wilderness of Sinai. But then we can ask even further, okay, but then what's the specific underlying connection between wilderness and receiving Torah? In other words, I get it, Bamidbar is the wilderness, and it's always the Shabbos before, or at least a Shabbos before Shavuos, and Shavuos is receiving the Torah, and we receive the Torah in a wilderness. Okay, that's the connection, that's true. But then, now, on a deeper level, what's the connection between receiving the Torah and being in a wilderness? That's our question. Why did we specifically receive Torah in a wilderness? Torah could have been given, you know, we could have been sitting in our homes, and uh, we could have been, you know, with four walls around us. Why do we have to be in the middle of a, of a barren 
desolate wasteland. So I want to tell you a story. And this is a story which, you know, when I hear a good story, the first thing that I think is, it's probably not true. And uh, yeah, I'm cynical. Yeah. And so when I heard this story, I said, I'm going to call the person that it supposedly happened to. And I called and it happened. It is verified. I heard it directly from the person who it happened to, to the rabbi that's in this story, um, whose name I will mention uh, soon when he comes up. Okay. But I'm going to start the story like this. I'm going to start the story. I'm going to go back to 1922. Philadelphia. A Jewish woman was born, a little baby Jewish girl named Selma Rosenberg. And she was raised there in the Jewish community, in the Jewish neighborhood in Philadelphia in the 20s. And there she was surrounded by Jewish community and the rhythm and the pulse of Jewish involvement. And then she she married, and she and her husband, Paul, they uh, relocated to the suburbs of Philadelphia, north, north of the city. And there she remained in the Jewish community. She was actually the president of her local chapter of Hadassah. And she and Paul were part of a congregation there. And that was her life for many, many, many decades. Then her husband passed away. And uh, as she was approaching her 95th birthday, she found her new home was in an assisted living facility in remote Peru, Illinois, where her son had, had moved with his family. Salma's son was living in Peru, and uh, he moved his mother, Salma, out to a, an assisted living facility there in Peru. Now, I want to tell you something. I'm from Chicago. I never heard of Peru before. I don't know where Peru is, but we, we have a saying in Chicago. And by the way, you can tell them from Chicago because they have to say Chicago, not Chicago. I used to say roof, but my kids didn't understand me, so now I say roof as well. At any rate, they, we have a saying in Chicago. Just outside Chicago, there's a place called Illinois. Okay, It's like New Yorkers when they say, I'm going upstate. Where? Rochester? Buffalo? No, it's Muncie. Muncie's upstate, right? Okay. Um, so just outside Chicago, there's a place called Illinois. So I never heard of Peru, but Peru is one of these little Illinois towns in the middle of nowhere, real, a real midbar. And Selma is there, approaching 95 years old, and she's the only Jewish person there in her, in the assisted living facility. And uh, she's surrounded by the cornfields. And a few months previous to the story I'm about to tell you, Selma just happened to mention on the phone with a friend that it had been a long time since she'd seen a rabbi. She's in Peru, Illinois. There are no rabbis in Peru, Illinois. She's, it's been a long time since she's even seen a rabbi. It would be really, really meaningful to her if she would see a rabbi. So the friend that Selma had spoken to called Selma's niece, Naomi. By the way, how do I have all these names and these details? First of all, like I told you, I verified what the rabbi happened to. Second of all, it was written up on Chabad.org, and uh, I can provide the link, and you can all read the story, and uh, exactly, every detail exactly as it happened. So the friend, Selma's friend, tells the niece, Naomi, 
your aunt Selma, she's saying it's been so long since she's she's seen a rabbi, and she really, you know, she wishes she could see a rabbi. So Naomi goes on Kabbat.org, and she does what you should do. She puts in her Illinois, she puts in the the, the, the the zip code six whatever whatever, and what comes up closest uh, shliach, closest Chabad house to Peru, is sixty miles away. And uh, who is it? It's Rabbi Telsner in normal. What's normal? What's normal Illinois, as opposed to abnormal Illinois, right? No. Normal, actually, they used to call teacher training institutes normal schools. I think it's a, from a French word. They call normal. Uh, so Bloomington Normal. There's a university there called uh, Illinois State University, not to be confused with the University of Illinois. But it started there as a teacher's training institute in normal. And normal is called normal because a normal school used to mean for teaching teachers, I think it has to do with teaching uh, standards of teaching, which is called like normal standards of teaching. At any rate, it's called Normal Illinois. So Chaim Telsner, he's the shliach there on campus with uh, at, at the Illinois State University, and he's in Normal Illinois. So the niece calls up Rabbi Telsner and says, I've got an aunt, Selma, who's 95 years old, in Peru. You ever heard of Peru? No, you hadn't heard of Peru. So Rabbi Telsner gets the number for Selma's room at the assisted living facility, and he calls her. Because he figures, before I'm going to drive an hour on the, inter on the interstate, and, and, and on the chance that maybe she'll be there, or you know, or maybe I'm, obviously she'll be there, but maybe she won't be available, she can't see me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call first. So he, from the time he got the number, he was calling... You know, like every every other day or so for a couple of weeks, and he never got through to her. And finally, it was one ad of Shabbos. Okay, you know what ad of Shabbos is in a Jewish home, especially a Chabad house, especially a Chabad house on campus. So Chaim tells his wife Rachel, he says, "You know, there's this 95 year old lady an hour from here. We're the closest Chabad. I know it's ad of Shabbos. I just I, I got to go to her. I got to go check it out. I, I I keep calling and I'm not getting through. I'm just going to go check it out." So his wife, Rachel, the real Eish Chayel, the shlucha that she is, she says, I just baked fresh challah, take fresh challah, and bring them to this woman, and uh, for Gesundheit, hey, travel safely, and be back in time for Shabbos. So Chaim goes with the freshly baked challah, and he goes an hour out on the interstate, and he gets to the assisted living facility, and he walks in the lobby, and a woman turns and sees him from across the room, it's Selma. There's no question. This is who it is. It's Selma. And she starts to gush with enthusiasm. I can't believe it. It's been so long since I've seen a rabbi. And Rabbi Telsner sat down with her, and they talked, and they schmoozed, and they reminisced about all the different Jewish connections and the Jewish geography and her growing up in Philadelphia and the old Jewish neighborhood back in the day and about her children and her grandchildren. And he gave her the challah, and she clutched that challah with such joy. And then he gave her another gift. He gave her the battery-operated tea light, the little electronic tea light, because, you know, you can't light, you can't have the flame uh, in, in the assisted living facility. But it's Shabbos candles, Friday afternoon, Shabbos. So he gave her the little electronic tea light. And the moment he handed it to her, as if just by some force, she just started to say the, the, the blessing. And benching licht, it's all the memories came flooding back to her, 
and, and she was just beaming. She was so happy. And, and she says, Rabbi, this is amazing. You don't realize what you've done for me. And of course, he felt that his connection with Selma had done something for him as well. You know, the, what, what, what is a shliach to live for other than a connection like this? So he says to her, he says, listen, it's Shabbos. It's out of Shabbos. Friday. I'm an hour away from home. I gotta go. I gotta get back home. We got students coming tonight. Uh, we're on the campus in in, in uh, Illinois State. Uh, but I'll tell you what. Do you, would you like to meet my children? She says, "Oh, Rabbi, of course I would like to meet your children. Beautiful, cute little Jewish children. Of course I would like to see your children." He says, "So next out of Shabbos, I'm gonna bring my children. I'm gonna come back next Friday, and I'll bring the children." Ah, delicious kindalach. Oh, beautiful. Okay, next day of Shabbos. Rabbi, thank you so much. Okay. So, um, he went. He went home and obviously made it home for Shabbos. And um, that evening, Selma was on the phone with her son. Now you're going to say, Friday night she was on the phone with her son? Yes, Friday night. She was, she was not Shabbos observant. She was on the phone with her son. And she starts to talk to him about the rabbi who came and visited me. Now, you have to understand something. A 95-year-old woman who, who's in Peru, Illinois, who starts talking about the rabbi who suddenly appeared at the assisted living facility and talked to me for an hour, um, with all due respect, he, he, he assumed that it was some type of a hallucination, that some... He, he, it, there's no rabbi anywhere near Peru, Illinois, and, and, and not, not one who just suddenly shows up. So he was worried about her. The next day, uh, Selma's daughter-in-law came and visited her at the assisted living facility. And uh, she had heard, you know, her husband had told her that my mom is sort of talking weird things and, you know, maybe just check out, make sure that she's lucid. And uh, they were sitting and talking and, and, and Selma started talking about the rabbi. I got, the rabbi visited me, the rabbi. And, you know, obviously the daughter-in-law was concerned about that. Then she says, he, he visited me, and look what he brought me. And she brought out the leftover challah and the tea light. And she held them with such pride. She says, look what the rabbi brought me. And then her daughter-in-law knew it wasn't a dream. I mean, if it was a hallucination, then she's having it too. She saw, here's the leftover challah. Here's the tea light. Something happened. And they realized that she had been visited by a real rabbi. And she says, and yes, and he's going to come next Friday before Shabbos to visit me as well. I want to tell you that that night, Saturday night, the night after Shabbos, Selma passed away peacefully in her sleep. And her last Shabbos, her last day in this world, she was able to welcome that Shabbos with challah and with the Shabbos candles. So why was Torah given in a desert? Why was Torah given in a barren wasteland in the middle of nowhere? I'll tell you why. Lubavitcher Rebbe says that when Hashem gave the Torah in 2448 since creation, 
He knew there would come a time one day when a Jew might be in a spiritual desert, in a place utterly devoid of Jewishness. And it would seem to us that a Jew in such a situation, in such a desert, is beyond reach, beyond hope. And there's no way to draw them back, no way to connect them back. Yet we need to know that when Torah was given the first time, it was given precisely where? In a desert. So when we see a Jew, whenever we see a Jew in a desert who seems so far away, so lost, so removed from a community, so removed from, 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 the, from Torah institutions, and from we need to see this and we need to be like the students of Aaron, loving the creatures and drawing them close to Torah. Just as it was the very first time Hashem gave his Torah to the Jewish people in the middle of an empty wasteland, a wilderness, a desert, so too every single Jew at every single time, in every single situation, even when he or she is in a place that seems totally inhospitable to Judaism and inhospitable to Torah, a place that's so removed, they can be reached in that place. And when we go out of our way to reach out to the Jew who's in a spiritual desert, neither connected, neither measure for measure, Hashem finds us in whatever desert we may be in. Each one of us knows, relatively speaking, where we could be, the level that we could be at, and that relative to what we could be doing right now, we are in a little bit of a desert. But when we find a Jew in a desert and connect them back to Judaism, Hashem comes and finds us in whatever desert we may be in and gives us the Torah in that place. And therefore, the greatest preparation for Shavuos and for the receiving of the Torah anew each year is Parshas Bamidbar, the Torah portion, whose very name and title means in the desert. May Hashem come and find us, each one of us, every Jew, wherever they are, in whatever situation they may be in, and give us the Torah again.